Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Josh Bolick, Scholarly Communication Librarian at the Schulenberger Office of Scholarly Communication and Copyright at the University of Kansas. We will discuss his article, Leveraging Elsevier's Creative Commons License Requirement to Undermine Embargo, which was published in the Journal of Copyright in Education and Librarianship. So welcome to the, to the podcast, Josh. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. I'm super happy to talk to you. Yeah, I'm so glad that your work was recommended to me because your focus on open access and maximizing open access is is near and dear to your heart. And um, I love a clever plan, uh, as least as much as anyone, probably more so. And I think your article proposes an exceptionally clever plan, and I look forward to sharing it with with listeners. Um, but I, I, I think that because a lot of listeners are going to be coming from a legal scholarship background, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how publishing works in other scholarly areas, which I think are the primary focus of, of your article, and sort of how scholarly publication interacts with the companies distributing the the scholarship and and copyright law um yeah uh sure so um so yeah i'm not a specialist in any particular um disciplinary publishing like except for my own um so then this does like sort of vary widely and some disciplines like law in particular uh, or economics works um, kind of in its own sort of ways. So there's a lot of sort of disciplinary uh, sort of variety. Um, but the sort of the norm is that uh, as scholar, as researchers, we tend to um, own our research outputs. And so um, maybe a researcher gets a grant to conduct a study. Um, they write up a report repor- reporting on the, res- the, the outcomes of that study. Um, they submit it to a journal in their field um, where it would be considered by other scholars who are serving in sort of editorial roles as service to their discipline. Um, and that editor would make a decision about sending it out to peer reviewers or not. If they think it's an interesting piece of work, they'll send it out for peer review. Um, those peer reviewers, like the author and like the editor, are also working scholars that uh, are at universities somewhere pursuing their own programs of research and teaching and service. And so they're providing um, this peer review services to journals in their discipline as service, again, to their fields. And so they provide feedback on that manuscript, uh, hopefully strengthening it. Um, If that results in uh, an acceptance of the article um, to the journal, then the author, they they would get that reviewer feedback and develop the the paper further with that feedback in mind, get it back to the editor. uh, And at that point, they might accept it for publication in the journal. Um, There are thousands of publishers, but uh, a lot of publishing, uh, journal uh, publishing is uh, owned by about five companies. And then there's sort of a long tail of additional um, journal publishers. And I should say there, some of these companies are commercial. 
uh, in nature, but there are also a lot of not-for-profit actors in these spaces. So you have university presses um, and sometimes society journals um, that might be published not-for-profit. Um, but uh, at that point of acceptance, the the journal would give the author a publication agreement. And typically those publication agreements would have the author assign the copyright to the publisher. Um, and then when the publisher publishes the work, um, if it's behind a paywall, if, it's, it's, if the journal is a subscription journal, um, they would then uh, sell that content um, but, you know, to libraries via subscriptions. Um, and so they're creating artificial scarcity um, to something that, you know, the authors aren't di- paid directly, aren't directly compensated financially for doing this research. Uh, like it's part of our jobs to do our research and we have salaries to support doing that, but there's not a one-to-one relationship with submit to a journal and get, get uh, money back. So the basic idea is that we as a scholarly community are doing the research and writing the research and submitting it to journals that are frequently managed by our peers. And we're doing the peer review uh, as service to our fields and the publishers aren't typically paying for any of this. And then we sort of turn that all of that labor over to them so that they can sell back to us our own <laughs> scholarly outputs. Um, that, that, that's the basic model. And so frequently in, in the publication. Well, contract, and Josh, and Josh, ahead, when you, de- yeah. when you just, when you describe that, it just sounds so appealing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. If we could, um, if we could reinvent academic publishing in, 2019, I think it would look very different than it does, but we're sort of saddled with the legacy of a publishing system that starts with the, the first academic journal published in like 1665 and sort of the, the way it developed, especially in the post-war boom in the mid-20th century. Um, it was really commercialized and monetized and privatized um, mm-hmm. in ways that then the internet comes along and creates this tool for, for sharing, um, but you know, we have these companies that are entrenched and um, not um, maybe super interested in relinquishing revenue streams. Right. So it seems like the upshot is that the journal publishers are, in effect, making access to scholarship both limited and expensive. And that's not really serving scholars in the fields where where it's an issue, and of course the open access movement has been been pushing back against that artificial scarcity and expense that that you're describing with with some success. It seems like with respect to some journals, and in, in other words, they're sort of beginning to allow for more and different kinds kinds of access. But you talk about one particular kind of limit that that some publishers have put on the dissemination of, of scholarship. And that's what you, you refer to as an embargo. And I wonder if you could talk about what an embargo is. And in particular, what did the Elsevier embargo look like? Because the Elsevier policy is really the, the, the crux of the focus of, of your article. So, you know, maybe talk about that a little bit and sort of what is Elsevier and why, why is it so important to think about Elsevier in this context? Yeah. So, um, Elsevier is, uh, an academic publisher. Um, they're, um, 
uh, one of the largest of the commercial publishers, I think the largest of the commercial publishers, uh, maybe a, pretty close alongside Springer Nature. Um, but they publish about, I think it's about 2,500 um, scholarly journals. Um, the, the access to these journals goes up at a rate of about 4 to 6% per year. And so like you're seeing, um, many of your listeners may have um, seen in sort of national and academic media that the entire University of California system recently walked away from their negotiations with Elsevier. And this is a lot of what um, they were, the source of the sort of disagreement um, concerns access to the, the work produced by UC scholars. Um, but uh, an embargo is a delay on release. So um, when I was describing the sort of like process previously, that publication contract is a really important legal document that stipulates who owns the intellectual property in that work. Uh, Often that is transferred uh, in whole to the publisher, but then frequently the publisher licenses back permission to do um, certain things, like maybe uh, give it to students in the course of teaching in your classroom, present on it at conferences, uh, put, put it online somewhere where other people can read it. Um, and, and that's that version where they would say, um, well, I should back up a little and say that typically they wouldn't allow the sharing of the final published version, the sort of version of record that you would access via the publisher's webpage if you have access or in a library database. Um, they would allow for sharing of a pre-publication version. So like the, the submitted manuscript is the original submitted copy that goes out to peer reviewers. And the accepted manuscript is the article in the sort of state that it was in on the day that the, the editor of the journal said, congratulations, we're going to publish your article. Um, so frequently, in most cases, authors are able to share their accepted manuscript version on, in some place and on some timeline. So... Elsevier's particular policy, which they updated in 2015, um, and I sort of described the process behind that in uh, my article, particularly the reaction to it, um, is that they allow uh, an author of a, an Elsevier published paper to put their accepted manuscript version on their personal website or blog immediately on publication. Um, and then there's something else um, that figures into this called an institutional repository and frequently also um, disciplinary or subject repositories. So then they say, if you want to put your work into your institutional or subject repository, um, there would be an embargo or a delay on the release of that copy for anywhere from six to 48 months. Um, Broadly in publishing, 12 months is fairly normal. Um, That's what, if you're uh, if you get a grant from a major federal funder like the National Institutes of Health or National Science Foundation, um, they require public access to the research reporting on that work within 12 months. But they do allow that 12-month embargo. And so an embargo is just a, a delay on release. And um, Elsevier is saying you can put a copy on your personal website or blog immediately, but to put it in this um, arguably more visible place, like an institutional repository uh, where librarians will have enriched the metadata um, that helps search engines find that content. Um, There's a a delay on that of, in some cases, up to four years. Right. So I want to get to your workaround 
in just a second. But I, but I wonder if you could just reflect on something for me, kind of in your role as a copyright librarian and someone who makes who provides advice on these questions to to scholars. I mean, why is it that scholars and scholars in so many different disciplines sort of are willing to give up control of the use and dissemination of the scholarship that they've generated. I mean, after all, it's like they're doing all the work and getting none of the benefit. And in fact, allowing these, these publishers to prevent them from, you know, making free kind of productive use of the scholarship that they've collectively produced. I mean, why don't they all just walk away the way that, that UC has? Sure. Um, so I think at the individual uh, sort of author level, it has everything to do with reward systems. And specifically, I'm thinking of, uh, at, well, first getting a job uh, and then hanging on to that job through the tenure and promotion process. Um, so I would imagine most people have heard the phrase publisher perish. Uh, and that is fairly literally the case for um, for scholars in that it's usually written into their positions um, that uh, sort of a typical um, position might look like. They spend 40% of their time teaching, 40% doing research, and 20% doing service. But the, the output of that 40% of research is, uh, you know, presentations at conferences, journal articles, book chapters, in some disciplines, books. Um, and those are the sort of things that they're then measured on. So um, on about usually in about the sixth year, an assistant professor goes up for tenure and uh, a committee of their peers, usually their you know, senior peers, will evaluate the sort of corpus of their research and decide whether or not they get to keep their job. Uh, and that might be based on um, what specific journals they published in and also what the impact of that work that they can demonstrate is, like how many citations it might have. And so there's a lot of competition uh, and motivation to publish in these journals because literally our jobs, you know, our futures at our institutions depend on it. Um, and there's also, I think it's important to know that there are relatively long timelines involved. So that peer review process that I described and the whole submission process uh, could easily take a year and more. And in in some disciplines, it's known to extend into the two and three year mark. So by the time uh, an author gets an acceptance and has the opportunity to sign that contract, they might be, they're usually on to the next project or even the one after that. And so the practice has been to just sign the publication contracts uh, kind of uncritically um, because you need those, you need those lines on your on your CV uh, to demonstrate that you're a productive scholar. Um, but what I try to encourage people to do is think about what their rights as authors are, uh, and to sort of envision themselves having a more uh, involved role in the post publication life of their research outputs. Because, like you point out, they they we do all the work, um, and we should. Uh, you know, I, because we're not writing for money, we're writing for impact. And so it, it, it behooves me as a researcher to ensure that as many other researchers or policymakers or interested readers as possible can read and critique and build on 
my work because that's impact and that's the sort of like currency of the realm. So, but I think that gets to why we're playing the game as researchers is that there are these ideas of prestige and, um, and the rewards aren't for keeping ownership of your work and uh, making sure that, you know, members of the public necessarily can read it though. I think I would argue that that's important. Um, the rewards are more about where you publish and how much you publish. Uh, and so because of these long timelines and the, the nature of the reward, reward system, um, scholars aren't frequently, um, while they're sympathetic to the sort of open access movement, they aren't necessarily motivated to change their behavior. Uh, but what I, what I try to encourage them to do is think about how they benefit directly from making their work more openly accessible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as far as so, like the, why don't why doesn't everybody walk away the way that UC system did? So that's the other side of the coin, right? Is that libraries part? We, you know, our job is to provide access to content so that researchers can can do their work. And so uh, there's a lot of fear, I think, in libraries that we're we're reaching this point where we've we've been cutting resources for a long time because our budgets are flat and these these subscription databases and and uh, journals go up at a rate exceeding the rate of inflation and so we just the math doesn't work Um, Mm -hmm. and so there are the cancellations but it's not a comfortable thing for a librarian who views it as their job to provide content to researchers to have to turn around to those researcher researchers and say uh we're sorry we can't we can't afford to provide access to this anymore and so there's a, a conflict there between what like our sort of service orientation uh, and our ability to provide access to the content because the the finances just don't add up. Mm-hmm. So ironically, on on in one sense, the sort of adoption of these embargoes seems like it reflects actually a sort of tentative move on the publisher's part in the direction of open access and the, in the, in the sense that, you know, the embargo says you can't distribute publicly for X period of time, but previously I take it that X period of time could have been basically forever or as long as the copyright runs or whatever. Right. So, I mean, it is like in a sense saying, you know, we're going to make distribution a little bit less limited. So I wonder what was the reaction to that kind of tentative move from from on the part of the open access community and kind of the people pushing for more and better and broader open access scholarship, um, the reaction to the fact of there being an expiration of an embargo at all. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that if you in a on a longer timeline, there's a long history of scholars sharing their work with other scholars. So you have like before the internet. Um, would they would literally mail copies of their papers to each other. Um, and so there's this history of scholarly sharing. Um, I mean, I do think that any availability um, on the open web of an article is better than no availability. So I think, you know, a, a, an embargo that expires is better than uh, one that doesn't. Um, <laughs> but... I, you know, I don't think that um, these publishers that protect these embargoes like woke up one morning and said, "You know what? Let, let's let's let the work be free." Um, that 
all of that results from researchers and librarians and and also members of the publishing community. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, um, but those are those are that that's those are rights won on behalf of authors' rights, um, and there's been pressure on those embargoes to be lower. Um, I've been looking back at the NIH policy, the public access policy that the National Institutes of Health has, um, and there were legislative efforts um, that were supported by publishers to undermine and undo that policy. And so um, I, I, like the expiration of an embargo is a good thing, but um, like with Elsevier's uh, policy of sometimes 36 or even 48 month embargoes, uh, I question whether or not embargoes of that length are really necessary or even healthy. Um, They certainly aren't good from an author perspective. I don't think there are many authors that desire for their work to not be available for up to four years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so in your paper, you identify a workaround or a loophole, a way of avoiding one particular embargo that is the one imposed by Elsevier. So maybe you could lay out for listeners how that, how that loophole works. Sure. So um, the Elsevier policy stipulates, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, the author of a manuscript, an accepted manuscript, um, that is published in an Elsevier journal can put that accepted manuscript on their quote personal website or blog, um, but they also stipulate that that copy must bear a Creative Commons license. I know that um, you've talked to people on the podcast previously about Creative Commons licenses, um, but the particular license is a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, um, and that means that you can. Um, share that that content, but you can't change it. You have to maintain it in its uh, like verbatim form. Um, but then they say, in order to share the same the same uh, version of the manuscript in an institutional repository, they have this complex embargo structure, and it's a there, it's, it's a sixty page PDF that with a title by title uh, list of every title and the length of its embargoes. Um, but what I realized in working with some uh, of my colleagues at KU, um, because, I mean, I work with researchers across disciplines and with lots of different publishers, and I, always my goal is how can we support you in sharing this work as widely as possible and on the fastest timeline possible? And what I realized is that if they're able to put that copy on their personal website or blog, and it must have the Creative Commons license, that Creative Commons license is all the permission that we need to then ignore the embargo and deposit immediately in their institutional repository, not under the Elsevier sharing policy exactly, but because there's a copy available with a Creative Commons license on it. And something that's really important about Creative Commons licenses is that uh, it's stipulated like in the license itself, no additional restrictions. So the license is the license, and you can't, uh, a licensor can't add additional restrictions to that. Uh, and so that, that license is all of the, the permission that we need. Actually, everyone in the world could take a so-licensed paper and put it on their website or blog or um, 
or in their own institutional or disciplinary repository, um, so long as they're doing that in a non-commercial way and they're providing attribution. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got to comply with the terms of the license, but that's pretty easily done. Um, so that yeah, that, I mean that that's the loophole is that Elsevier simultaneously said um, you can put a copy on your personal website immediately with this Creative Commons license, but for repository sharing, uh, there's an embargo, but the CC license is the way, the avenue to undermine the embargo. So basically, every Elsevier paper, every paper published in an Elsevier journal since this policy was updated in spring of 2015 could be on the open web, discoverable and available uh, without any embargo at all. Right. And that's because the embargo policy imposed by Elsevier is, quote, an additional restriction outside the scope of the Creative Commons license. So presumably it could be enforceable against the author, but not against third parties. Am I getting that right? Um, yeah, but like even the author is working within the confines. Like all, we're all working within the confines of the policy just not in a way that they anticipated, right? Mm. Like they are mandating that the author can share an accepted manuscript version on their personal website or blog immediately, but it must bear that Creative Commons license. And so Mm. in in posting on their site with that correct license, they're carefully following the letter of the sharing policy. And Mm. then we are working kind of within, but kind of without the sharing policy, because once that copy is available on the web and I know of it, I can grab it and drop it into the repository. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Cool. So to what extent are you aware of people taking advantage of, of this loophole? I mean, I know that it's gotten a fair amount of attention and a lot of conversation. Do you see people taking advantage of it? And sort of what kind of reactions have you gotten to, to your proposal? Yeah. So, um, so reactions have been generally really strong and positive. Um, I think, you know, the, even the, the title, um, before it was a, an article, it was a poster that I, I did at the, what's called the, the Kramer Copyright Conference in Colorado Springs. Um, and there I had like two hours of sustained feedback with uh, scholars, many of whom are lawyers and who work in sort of copyright in libraries uh, and in the academy space, um, including people like Kenny Cruz and uh, Kevin Smith, who's uh, now my, my dean. But these are highly known and respected uh legal scholars who work in libraries and specifically on, uh, on sharing and have a history of that work. So um, that was really exciting and the feedback was positive. Uh, I actually just heard Unbidden from an editor of the journal um, that it was published in this morning that I'm about 50 downloads from 8,000 downloads, uh, <laughs> which is a pretty ridiculous amount of engagement for a scholarly article. Um, mm-hmm. Usually if, you know, like, if a few dozen of my peers read my work, uh, I would I would be fairly happy about that. So um, this circulated on Twitter and on some important um, kind of list email lists in uh, my world. Um, 
so Elsevier responded in a couple interesting ways. Um, right after the poster, uh, one of the sort of fairly high-level executives um, sort of was dismissive on Twitter and said, I mean, I don't think being mean dismissive, but he, he just said, uh, this is just the policy working as intended. Um, but I don't, I don't really buy that because w- why would you set up a complex embargo structure of up to 48 if you lines can't enforce title it, yeah. by title? <laughs> like, why even bother to do that if you intend for us to be able to share immediately in institutional repositories? Mm. Um, and um, then when the article came out, uh, another pretty high-level Elsevier executive, uh, both on Twitter and in some email lists, um, and I think in a, an interview or two, um, said that leveraging the policy in that way isn't in the spirit or intent of the policy, uh, and to please respect the embargoes. Um, and like that, that that's fine. Uh, I think that's an understandable reaction, and I'm even somewhat sympathetic to it. Um, but I, my response was that in navigating the complexity of these policies, we can't possibly be expected to understand the spirit and intent of them. Um, I expect a sharing policy intends sharing and what I'm doing is supporting sharing. And, um, so I, I you know, like I, in my job is supporting my researchers at my institution and sharing their work as vastly and uh, as, as openly and as quickly as possible. And that's what I'm doing. Um, I think it's also fine that they ask uh, authors to respect the embargoes, but um, that will be a decision made at the individual author and their sort of repository manager uh, level. And I suspect that some of them will choose to respect that request and others will not. Um, as far as people doing it, you know, like I don't, uh, people don't tend to write to me and say, Hey, I did the thing. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't have a great sense of that. And I think I, I write in the paper, um, that it's, it's a fiddly process. Like there's a specific set of criteria that have to hold. Uh, I, uh, as this, you know, a person supporting my faculty and sharing their work have to be aware of the loophole. Uh, I have to communicate it to them. You know, this applies only to authors who are publishing in Elsevier journals. They need to have a personal website or blog that they could put their work on. They need to understand how to apply the CC license and follow through with doing that. They need to communicate that with me. So it's not like this fundamentally changes the way that we're able to, um, you know, share their work. Like I, I view this as a tool in my toolbox that, you know, if they were publishing in any other publisher's journal, I would look at the policies of the, of that journal or publisher and say, here's what we can do. And when that happens to be an Elsevier journal, I'm able to say, here's what we can do in the, in the context of this journal. Um, I've heard from a handful of people that they are trying it or are excited to try it. Um, but it is a, fairly hands-on process. And that, that's a weakness of it. Like I don't view this as a repository collection development strategy. This is one of the ways that I can support uh, my research communicators um, mm. under when those specific criteria apply. So do you anticipate 
the use of this loophole you've identified having any effect on Elsevier's profits? <laughs> um, mm. And are you concerned about Elsevier potentially kind of taking a step back mm-hmm. and um, changing or limiting or um, revising the scope of its sharing policy to make it harder or even impossible for people to use this, this workaround. Right. Um, so when this policy was announced in spring of 2015, there was a lot of criticism of it. Um, the, it, it was criticized as overly and unnecessarily complex um, that the CC license, that, that particular license is the most restrictive of the licenses. And so uh, open advocates argued that authors should be able to apply whatever license they want to the, the copy that they share. Uh, the embargo periods were criticized. Um, so there was a lot of criticism. Um, the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition, SPARC, uh, and the Coalition of Open Access Repositories, CORE, um, the executive directors of both of those organizations uh, put together a letter, I think within, um, I, I, I think I, I write about this in the paper, but pretty quickly there were hundreds and eventually I think a few thousand signatures by organizations like the American Library Association and the Association of College and Research Libraries, um, the Oberlin Group and lots of individual universities, and so you know, I my intention was never to convince Elsevier to do something differently. Uh, I you know because all of that criticism from uh, powerful organizations and people uh, didn't result in a change in the policy. I wouldn't presume to be able to have that kind of influence. Um, but at one point, um, one of those. Uh, res- executives that responded said kind of like, what's your, what's your goal? Like, what are you, or would you have us close the loophole, um, which would be bad for authors? Um, and my, you know, my, my response to that, I, like I hadn't really considered that because my, my audience wasn't Elsevier. My audience is my peers who are in a role to support researchers and making their work more open. Um, but um, it's, that's an interesting question. Like I do think on, on some timeline, they're going to update the policy anyway, like, uh, whether they do it in response to, um, any specific event, uh, I don't know, but they updated it in 2015 and the world's changing and it'll be updated again. Their impulse for, um, dealing with it, my impression in that question about like, well, would you have us close the loophole was to get rid of the CC licenses, but maintain the embargoes. Um, and I think that that would be a mistake um, for a couple of reasons. One, it, it's, a, it's retreating from openness. Uh, I mean, that, that's the most restrictive license, uh, Creative Commons license, and the open community was critical of the selection of that particular license. But I do think that any open license is better than an all rights reserved status, um, which is the default. Um, so I think getting rid of the, the creative commons license requirement would close the loophole, but in a way that open advocates would be extremely critical of, and that would create a lot of sort of news cycle, um, 
you know, that the, the policy when they updated it in 2015 was covered in all of the major sort of academic media, Inside Higher Ed, Times Higher Ed, uh, The Chronicle, uh, those sorts of venues. And um, I suspect they don't want that sort of attention, uh, especially when they're in the media for the UC cancellation and standoffs in um, the Netherlands and Germany and Sweden. Um, so um, my suggestion for closing the loophole is getting rid of embargoes altogether uh, because I, I have a hard time believing... I mean, you have to remember that it still takes effort on the part of the authors and uh, their institutional sort of support staff. Like they still have to take an action to first find their accepted manuscript, which generally practices around like retaining these things aren't great. Um, and then getting it somewhere uh, on the, on, on the open web. And so like none of this process is automated. And so the result of getting rid of embargoes would be, would still be the sort of haphazard availability of some copies of some papers, but I, I can't imagine that every author would go put their their copy of their accepted manuscript on even in their their institutional repository immediately. Like it would still be sort of a haphazard um, patchwork. Um, but I, I I don't know of libraries that are making purchasing decisions based on the haphazard availability of accepted manuscripts on the internet. Like mm-hmm. that's not that's not what's leading us to cancel journal packages or resources. Um, you know, flat budgets and rising costs are what do that. Um, I think between these sort of big deal cancellations, as exemplified in the University of California system. Uh, there's this thing called Sci-Hub, which is basically like Pirate Bay for scholarship. Um, Elsevier's got a lot bigger fish to fry than uh, these accepted manuscripts. It's sort of silly that we like it, a disagreement over them is sort of like uh, I've wondered about like what are we doing arguing about accepted manuscripts um, when they've just got bigger things going on to worry about. So, um, yeah, I think, have I answered the question? Yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Josh, in, in, in closing, I wonder sort of what you see going forward. I mean, it sounds like Elsevier is sort of tentatively coming around to realizing that like, well, maybe that's not exactly what we meant, but it doesn't seem to be such a bad thing. And we, we don't want to go back on it. Um, do you see other publishers adopting similar Creative Commons license requirements or expectations after Elsevier's experience? And sort of, mm-hmm. where do you see the next step in right. the push in the push for open access publication? That's a that's a great and complex question. So you know, the publishing is a lot bigger than any single company, um, and for a long time now there has been a move towards greater openness sort of generally. So you have uh, lots of, especially in life sciences, a lot of open publishing options where the journals themselves are open. There, there's no paywall. Um, You know, they, they, all of the, there's not even, there's not a subscription because they just publish all of their content openly. Um, Peer J is an example of this. PLOS, the public library of science, uh, eLife, 
um, Biomed Central. Um, so you've got a growing number of options across all kinds of publishing towards openness. Uh, there was an article, uh, I think last week in the Times Higher Ed, where um, a SAGE executive um, said that they have not they have not, they haven't gotten rid of embargoes, but they have not been uh, regulating them at all for a while. Um, and then Emerald Publishing, which is another of these um, sort of sec- next tier, not in terms of quality, but in terms of size, uh, sort of market share companies, um, saying that they ceased embargoes in 2017. And um, so the, I think that the headline of the article is uh, there's z- something like there's zero evidence that, em- uh, that embargoes or zero evidence for the lack of embargoes harming publishers. Mm. Um, so I, I do think the open access movement, open science movements are strong and not going away. And I, I think the, the future of publishing is increasingly open, but exactly what that looks like and who controls the process and who owns it um, is that's, that's the question now. I think um, you have, uh, you know, the um, sort of anecdote about first they, they criticize you and then they laugh at you and mm-hmm. then they ridicule you and then they co-opt you. And I think we're, we're in co-opt phase at this point where um, I think Elsevier is the second largest publisher of open content in the world, but whether or not they're doing that in a way that's equitable and um, sort of anchored in the values of the scholarly community um, is, is, is up in the air and very, very, very much worth discussion. And I think there's uh, a lot of advocacy for solutions that are not for profit and owned within the Academy because uh, any startup can be purchased. And in fact, we're seeing um, Elsevier's shifting from a publishing company to a data analytics company uh, and buying up infrastructure that supports sort of like a research life cycle. Uh, and so I think that in a way they see the writing on the wall that, you know, Sci-Hub isn't going away and the open access movement isn't going away, but it's less and less about content and more and more about the infrastructure and mm. the data. Um, the, the data is, you know, 21st century oil uh, and who owns that um, is, is pretty important. Great. Well, Josh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about your clever and I think really timely and important article. Uh, thank you so much. Like I, I, I love the opportunity. Article 1 of the Constitution concludes with three significant sections. The first of these sets forth the powers of Congress and is the basis of most federal legislation. The Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries.